Hey gang, welcome to episode 28 of the No Proscenium podcast, your podcast about immersive and interactive theater and its ilk. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. We're going to have a very quick opening this week, I promise you, because I've been super busy and I don't even know what's going on. Um, Not entirely true. Uh, Looking forward to hopefully catching Return to Forever House in Los Angeles before it disappears. I just got back from San Francisco where Hinge closed. That was a a really, that was an interesting experience because I got the night where the audience decided to troll the show. Um, so that's fascinating. We will have the creators on at some point, probably in December when I return to the Bay area. And, uh, I'm working on writing some stuff up right now for all the shows that I've been seeing that I haven't written up about because I'm either very busy or very lazy or maybe both. All right. On that note, this week's episode is with Aaron Mee. The host of the episode is Zay. Zay is coming to us from New York City. Aaron Mee is the director and creator of Versailles 2015. Um, And, I mean, she's a prolific theater creator. Um, Also, Fairy Play, which is on the Staten Island Ferry. That's part of her wheelhouse. Uh, Just one one of the most important directors working there in New York. Just put a little period there. Don't need to say anything else. Um... Big shout out this week to Matthew Bamberg Johnson. Yes, that Matthew Bamberg Johnson, as in last episode's Matthew Bamberg Johnson of the Speakeasy Society for becoming a Patreon backer. Oh my goodness, yes, indeed. Hey, uh, every little bit helps. We are, I think we're now officially at the $50 mark, which means I have to buy Zay a toy. Buy a toy, I mean a microphone. And you're going to really want me to do that. Okay, so uh, that's enough for now. Oh, a program note. There's going to be a moment in the middle where uh, the equipment kind of crapped out. And uh, I'm going to come in and say, this is the part where the equipment crapped out. And you'll notice that uh, they were talking about something and the conversation seemed to have moved on. Things happen uh, once in a while. That's the way it goes. I was able to get the gist. I was able to follow along. So uh, ultimately, it you can feel more the loss of like, oh, they said something clever. But you will continue to be able to follow along with the rest of it. So that is coming up about, I think about, uh, I want to say like 30 minutes in, around the 30-minute mark. And then uh, there's about, about 15 more minutes of show after that. We'll be back after that as well. Um, so once again, Aaron Mee, interviewed by Zay in New York earlier this month. Hello, this is Zay Amsbury, and I am in New York City with Erin Mee. We are, she was generous enough to let us use her apartment, so we're just chatting right here in the very living room um, where Mackenzie Fergans and I saw uh, Versailles 2015. So, hey Erin, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing very well. Erin and I were just talking about how it's unseasonably warm, which you <laughs> LA folks could not possibly comprehend. Um, But I wanted to get started just talking about This Is Not a Theater Company, which is Mm -hmm. a theater company that produced um, Fairy Play and Versailles 2015 and Ready Made Cabaret and uh, A Serious Banquet and Pool Play, which I was so sad to have missed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We had a lot of fun with that one. I can imagine. Um, but tell me a little bit about This Is Not a Theater Company and where the inspiration for it came from and how it developed and sort of its secret origin. Its secret origin. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, it developed because I have, for many, many years, I was very sad not to have been born in time to attend 
the party that Picasso threw for Henri Rousseau in 1908, uh, which was attended by Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas and Guillaume Apollinaire and blah, 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 and they all got smashed and they performed and they recited poetry and it sounded like a great party and I was sad to have missed it. Um, and I always wanted to try to make a theater piece out of it, but I couldn't quite figure out what that would be or how that would work. And finally I thought, I'm just going to gather together some people that I think are interesting who would be interested in trying to figure this out with me. You know, how could we make a theater piece out of that event? And we got together and what we made was a Cubist dinner party. And so what we did was to, to make that dinner party, but to make it in such a way that you went inside the world of Picasso's paintings and Gertrude Stein's writing. And in which, in other words, if continuous present is a literary version of Cubism, uh, then you went inside her writing and his paintings and, um, it was as if you got, so we did a serious banquet, which was an attempt to kind of give you, let you go inside one of his paintings. So it was a dinner party. People came, they had dinner. They were greeted at the door by a cubist sculpture. <laughs> um, and uh, they were then greeted by Picasso's mistress, Fernando Olivier. They, the phone would ring and they would pick up the phone and Guillaume Apollinaire would recite a poem. And then you would move over and get a drink, a glass of wine or some seltzer or something, and you had to draw on your cup to make sure that your cup didn't get, you know, confused with anyone else's. There was a, an artist, a friend of mine, made a picture, a painting of a chair that you could also actually sit in. Um, and then, one by one, all the other characters entered. Georges Brock, uh, uh, a couple of other, you know, et cetera, et cetera, Gertrude mm -hmm. Stein, blah, 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 um, Marc Jacob. And then um, they would involve you in various activities. So Marc Jacob uh, would ask the audience member, a couple of audience members, to help him make a poem. Um, Pablo Picasso drew some people in. Pablo Picasso was played by a woman, mm. and she had little tiny miniature canvases and a collection of nail polish, and people would join her and paint with nail polish on these canvases. And, uh, you know, a number of various sort of activities. Mm -hmm. um, André Salmon composed a song with a bunch of people, etc., etc. And then everyone sat down to dinner. And we laid out paper tablecloths, and people drew their plates, and then we gave them actual three-dimensional edible dinner. <laughs> uh, and uh, then there were toasts, so all of the characters toasted Rousseau and offered various toasts in the forms of dances, uh, poems, etc., etc. Um, there was we had a, were the were the audience members asked to toast as well. Some of them did. Mm -hmm. They weren't always encouraged to toast. Uh -huh. They they had been involved in helping to prepare some of the toasts that were offered. I see. So they were part of that. And uh, Picasso's toast was to create a sculpture with everyone at the table. <laughs> so Picasso sort of positioned different audience members so that they made a 
a, a cumulative sculpture. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point while some of this was going on, we had uh, a study of Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, mm -hmm. which was actually played by three actresses who then at one point escaped the painting and joined the party. So they sang a song. As you always song. kind of hope they, they could be exactly, able to. Exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, what was funny was that as the piece went on over the course of the run, they were supposed to get back in the frame by the end of the party. Mm -hmm. And several of them escaped. <laughs> and one of them, I looked over at one performance, and there was this woman going out and something was under her jacket and I realized it was one of the demoiselles <laughs> sneaking out under her jacket. So it was, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to go back into the frame. So it was a chance to really explore what cubism means at a variety of different levels. And it was very multi-sensory. We had a dance of chocolate. Mm. So uh, between courses, the audience would put a piece of chocolate on their tongue, close their eyes, we would play some music, and they would choreograph the dance of chocolate inside their mouths with their tongue. Um, Goodness. So it was, and then there were times where I was also asking what would, if Picasso did a Cubist painting, mm -hmm. if Gertrude Stein wrote Cubistically, which mm -hmm. she often claimed that she was doing, which is what uh, the continuous present was sort of designed to be. Mm -hmm. What would a Cubist theater piece be? Mm -hmm. What would that mean? What would that do? Mm -hmm. What would the dramaturgical structure be? Mm -hmm. So we also had uh, scenes that would repeat three or four times from the different perspectives of the different characters in the scene. Wow. So that, you know, so we had one scene that involved Marie Lancin, who showed up at the party drunk. And when you did it from her perspective, she was mystified about why people were being so rude to her and telling her to leave. When you did it from the perspective of the hostess, she was this completely trashed, loud, you know, out of control woman mm -hmm. who was going to wreck this party, this serious banquet in honor of Rousseau. That's fantastic. So when you, when you switch perspectives, mm -hmm. you know, you do the scene several times. Yeah. Um, but it's a completely different scene, although the lines are the same, uh -huh. et cetera, et cetera. Uh -huh. So we, we really kind of took the audience into this party, and the party was a Cubist dinner party in which you got to really live in a Cubist world as you got to attend this party that Picasso threw for Rousseau. That sounds so fantastic. It was so much fun. <laughs> so much fun, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did that take place in your apartment as well, or did no, you... No, that was in the Judson Gym. Oh, yeah. Which is the, the sort of basement space at Judson Church. Do you know Micah Ducey? Of course. He's the best. He's a good friend of mine. That's fantastic. Oh, really? Yes. Well, yeah. Of yeah. course. Well, that makes sense. My, I mean, uh, he is the best. I love really, him. really, really is. Yeah. Love him. Shout yeah. out to Micah Ducey. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Were you, were you at his... No, you can cut this out. Were you at his... Um, when he became... I forget the word for it. No. Oh. No. It was lovely. I bet. Lovely. I, saw, I saw photos on Facebook. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. about as close as I got. Yeah. All right. It's a personal moment now. <laughs> um, and listeners, if you heard all of that. Um, let's, can we, let's, take, let's, let's take one step back. So yeah. what, is your, what is your background? Okay. Um, my background is in directing. Okay. I, uh, um, I'm also a professor of dramatic literature at NYU. Okay. Uh, so I teach theater and theater theory and et cetera. I teach, a, you know, theories of directing and acting class. Mm -hmm. I teach um, Indian performance. 
So um, <clears throat> I graduated from college. I had an internship at the ART when Robert Brewstein was the artistic director. Mm -hmm. That dates me. Um, <laughs> um, I went to work at the La Jolla Playhouse, et cetera, et cetera. So I did the sort of regional theater thing. I was a resident sure. director of the Guthrie. I did a lot of classical play, you know, work, mm -hmm. a lot of Shakespeare. Um, I then uh, worked a lot uh, at home for contemporary theater and art when that existed down on Walker Street in mm -hmm. Manhattan. Um, and uh, then went off uh, to get a PhD, wrote a couple of books, and came back to directing. Uh, and by that time was interested in doing some other things. I was really interested in, again, trying to figure out how to stage a dinner party instead of stage a Shakespeare play. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Or not instead of, but I mean, might be interesting to do, you know, the donkey show or something like that. Mm -hmm. But in other words, I was really interested in doing a different kind of thing. Um, and so that led to my creating this, uh, to my creating a serious banquet. I brought in uh, Jesse Baer, who mm -hmm. was a really wonderful playwright, to work with us on that. And then we started working together. She also wrote... Um, two fabulous scenes for still life. I said, Jesse, I think that objects in this room should talk. So she wrote a great scene for a bottle and a vase. And then she wrote a scene for an apple and a peach. Because all those painters, you know, Cezanne, Matisse, mm -hmm. Picasso, they all did still lifes. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, well, how could we, what would a still life be if you did it in the middle of a theater piece? Mm -hmm. So she did a scene for an apple and a peach and they had a conversation. Uh, with a speaker in the middle of the table. We also had Guillaume Apollinaire was played by um, a glass of absinthe. <laughs> and so he was carried around and audience members handed him back and forth to different people. And he would recite poems. Um, the actor Trey Lyford recorded a number of I Apollinaire see, poems. See. Do you know Trey Lyford's no, work? No. He's okay. He's a, a wonderful actor. And so he recorded a lot of Apollinaire's poems and we would sort of play them one by one and the, the um, audience members would hand Apollinaire around, um, around the room. And so then I, st I had, uh, while I was teaching, one of my students had said, um, have you heard about uh, pod plays? And I said, no, I haven't. And so he told me about pod plays, and they were done, they, the first pod plays I discovered were done by a company in Vancouver. So I emailed them, and they sent me, you know, some pod plays to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I got very interested in that genre. Mm -hmm. um, and pod plays, for those of you who have never heard of this genre, are site-specific audio plays. And so the idea is that you download an audio play onto a device back in the day, uh, onto a, what are those called now? iPods, right, that's why they were called pod plays. Yeah. Now I think you download them to your smartphone. So yes. I call them smartphone cheer plays everything. now. Cheer everything to that. <laughs> to your, yeah, to your <laughs> I thing. Yes. Um, and, but I was um, very interested in the notion of a pod play being an actual play. Mm -hmm. We've all done a guided tour in a museum where you stick some earphones in and, you know, they say, and this painting was painted in blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And that wasn't so interesting to me. Um, these pod plays that were done by New World Theater in Vancouver were very interesting, but they still had sort of 
turn left here. When you get to the corner, do mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So I started talking to Jesse and saying, I'd be really interested in doing one where we didn't have to give anybody any stage directions. We mm -hmm. could figure out how to have a play that would be really just the play. Mm -hmm. And so we made a list of places where we would want to do a pod play. One was a swimming pool. I'll come back to that in a moment. Mm -hmm. One was the Staten Island Ferry. One was the New York City subway. I'll come back to mm -hmm. that in a moment. Um, and we chose to start with the Staten Island Ferry. So just after we finished a serious uh, banquet. And why did you choose Staten Island Ferry to begin with? Um, to me, it's one of those great, iconic New York venues. Mm -hmm. um, people think it's all about tourism, but actually people in Staten Island use it as their daily commuting Which is a wonderful tool. moment in Fairy Play. Right, right, <laughs> where the guy says, all right, you guys, <laughs> I'm commuting here, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, the truth is, if you ride the ferry, there are, you know, there's the bay, there's the Statue of Liberty, mm -hmm. there's the... Um, so we had the most beautiful lighting designer for Fairy Play. Well, so let me backtrack and say... Mm -hmm we decided to do a pod play on the Staten Island Ferry. We started riding the Staten Island Ferry. And, of course, once that is your site, the sun is your lighting designer. Mm -hmm. The Hudson Bay is your set. The Statue of Liberty is your set. The people on the ferry are the characters in your play. Um, and so as Jesse and I were riding the play, uh, the ferry together, we overheard a conversation which I tried to record and I fumbled up the recording and it didn't work, but so Jesse had to recreate it, but it was the scene between the two drunk guys. Oh, um, wow. Which was very sort of true to life. Yeah, um, I mean, the presence of alcohol in the Staten Island Ferry is like this, it's something that, it feels archaic almost. It feels right. like this weird thing that occurs in this tourist slash commute device. And there are just right. people who are, I mean... They're just people I've who I've been are, drunk on the Staten Island Ferry yeah, right. many times. Right. I actually haven't been drunk on the Staten Island Ferry, but there is a whole... I mean, there are so many different groups of people that yes. share that piece of real estate yeah. and share that journey and have completely different journeys, even though they're 10 feet away from each other. Yeah. So that was really interesting to me. Um, and I was interested in the, you know, the way in which people ride it as a sort of way to see the Statue of Liberty and they go and they get off and they turn around and they come right back on because they wouldn't want to stay in Staten Island because it's off the radar for yeah. them. And then of course the ferry also has people who ride it every day. It's how they get to work. Um, people who ride the ferry and party on it, right? You yeah. know, at three in the morning you get all kinds of people who are partying. Yeah. It's a, you know, um, they also did, uh, and unfortunately I was out of town and I missed it, but they did one of those silent disco things on the ferry. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah that makes yeah. sense. Um, so we became fascinated by the people riding the ferry, by the, it seemed like a microcosm of New York. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then we began to hit some of the technical issues, which were, you know, it's 18 and a half minutes long. When do you press play? What do you do? How do you get people to go outside? How do you get people to come back in? How do you, you know? Um, and so that just became fun and challenging. Yeah. I won't, you know, give too much away, too many spoilers. Um, but it was, it, so for a while I also thought, well, at some point we want to kind of have 
silent space in the recording so that you can hear the announcements on the ferry. Then, um, as I rode the ferry again and again, I realized they never came at the same time. So we just had to sort of wait, hear the announcement, press play, et cetera, and just go. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that's fascinating to me about that ride is the way in which the pre-recorded uh, stuff never changes. And the, mm. it's, the ferry ride always changes. Mm. It's different depending on the time of day you go. It's different, you know, at brunch on Sunday than it is at 6 o'clock on Tuesday. It's different if it's snowing out than if it's raining or if it's, you know, a hot August day or a lovely, cool fall evening. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, the setting is entirely different. The characters are entirely different. And what's kind of fun is... Um, that the recording begins to kind of mesh with the live action that's actually on the ferry. So we have this one, as you know, we have this one section where um, uh, people go on the recording, go and start to take pictures with the Statue of Liberty. Mm -hmm. And most people that I've talked to have said, oh yeah, actual live people began to do it. So the recording, what was going on in the recording really began to kind of meld with what was actually happening in real life. One of my students did it, and they said that just as that commuter on the audio was getting into an argument with the character in the play, an actual commuter was on their cell phone yelling, you know, to somebody on a conversation and saying, you know, yes, I'm on the ferry, I'm commuting, I'm on my way home, you know. Um, so... What we tried to do was bring together what we um, what we had observed on the ferry mm -hmm. um, with some of the things we we knew or hoped might be there every time, and then of course there's always the happenstance of you know the magic of what ends up actually happening on the ferry. It's it's funny because when I did the ferry play, I <clears throat> I was keen to do it to not do it during rush hour to do it uh -huh. at a time when I felt like there would be fewer people on it because I hadn't right. read I hadn't written the Staten Island Ferry in quite some time so I didn't quite remember what the how crowded it was what the rhythms were like and I right. I was excited so I didn't want to um anything to get in the way yeah you know yeah um and and there was like a slight anxiety you know, am I starting at the right time am I doing right. this stuff right and but then once it started it was very because there are a lot of different and again I won't I won't give these transitions away but there the way in which the play works itself into the space and works you into the space has transitions and there are mm -hmm. different different approaches that are taken throughout the act one and act two going on right. back um, that are really wonderful. Well, and, and the way it's eased in is really great. They're rhythmically very different acts too. Yes. Because so. Manhattan, Staten Island is very frenetic often because yeah. there are always enough tourists to make it frenetic. Mm. The ride from Staten Island to Manhattan is often much calmer. Yeah. People are seated, because either you get the Staten Islanders who have ridden the ferry a thousand times, or you get the people who were so hyper going over that they're exhausted already coming back. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, no, but it just no. was, um, so we worked that into it as well, the sort great. of rhythm of the, of the actual circle. It's great. Um, so you, well, just another question about fairy play. Um, so did you, how, how did the app development happen? 
it was, um, I thought at one point the best way to sort of distribute the audio mm -hmm. because um, most pod plays are one act. Mm -hmm. They're one, you know, whether they're 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 10 minutes, mm -hmm. they're one audio clip. Right. And I knew we needed two. Right. And I thought, well, we need a self-contained thing. Yeah. And then I thought, well, the app can just contain the program and the, you know, sure. all this kind of stuff. And we got a really incredible app designer. Um, uh, he's the guy, I don't know if you've ever done Phil Klein's Unsilent Night. No. Oh, no. you would love that. Okay. Phil Klein is a composer, and he has these four beautiful kind of Gamelon-esque mm -hmm. audio tracks. And you start at Washington Square Park, and you walk through the village, and you end up at Tompkins Square Park. And you can do it. He has a few boom boxes, if you remember the boom box. Yes. Um, and you can do it That's with this. That's dating me. Yes. <laughs> you can do it with this thing called a cassette. I've heard of these creatures. Yes, yes. yes. Um, but he also now has an app, and you can download the app, and the app will automatically sort of randomly choose one of the four tracks. Oh, interesting. And so you walk through the village with, you know, several hundred other people, yeah. all of whom have started these different tracks at the same time, and it creates this beautiful musical piece that, you know, you walk through the village with. It's That's kind of like, um, you know, high-tech high culture Christmas caroling, but, you know, non-religious caroling uh -huh. through the village. It's really beautiful. So the guy who did Phil Klein's app did our app. That's great. Um, and he did, I think, a really beautiful job. It's, it's really great. It's very elegant. It's very simple. Yeah. Anyone can use it. It's really, it's yeah. very good. Yeah. yeah. And then once we had decided to do it as an app, I thought, well, then we're not charging a $25 theater ticket price for it. We right, have, right. We're in the app world. So we charged a dollar ninety nine, which means then it's actually a theater piece that's available to people who can't afford, Absolutely. you know, a Broadway ticket price. Yeah. So, so that actually has meant that we've had a, a much more diverse audience, which is interesting to me at a time when many theaters are sort of saying, "How do we make our audiences more diverse?" Yeah. We sort of stumbled into two answers. One is bring the theater to them, do it on the Staten Island Ferry right. where everybody is welcome, open to the public, and make it available for $1.99. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and make them part of the experience. Mm -hmm. You know, so. When you, when Theory Play first came out, how was it, how was it publicized? When did you bring it to, how was it brought to people who wouldn't otherwise, um, uh, be aware of anything going on in, in theater. Right. Well, we did press releases mm -hmm. and all of that to all of the standard, you know, newspapers, mm -hmm. etc. Um, uh, I went down to the Staten Island Ferry and handed out flyers That's to great. people who were standing there. That's great. Um, and it was then part of the Fringe Festival, the New York Fringe, and so we got a lot of press attention. We also had somebody working with us, a young woman named Emily Cordes, who's mm -hmm. really quite, um, she's an actress and a sort of marketing whiz. Mm -hmm. And um, so she managed to get some press attention and things like the Staten Island Advance and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we sort of reached a Staten Island community and then just through Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Email and things like that. That's great. Word of mouth. So... Are you planning on doing more of these pod plays? Yes. <laughs> so we're working on one now for the subway. 
uh, and our hope at the moment is to have three different playwrights, one for each of the subway lines. So one for the Q, one for the L, and one for the 7. And my hope is that it will be multilingual and all kinds of things. That's so great. we're just beginning to work on that. So I won't say too much about that. Sure, but sure. Um, so the idea will be you'll you know get on at one stop, get off at another, and either explore the area mm-hmm. or turn around and get back on. That's great. And come back. So I've wanted to do a play in the New York City subway for I don't know 25, 30 years. Yeah. And this is one way I can do it legally. Right, without I don't have to get permits. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. have to get you know. Um, people can just download it onto their smartphones, mm-hmm. take the subway, and away we go. Do you know Ruth McKee of Chalk Rep in Los Angeles? No. Ruth McKee, she's a wonderful playwright, um, and she is also the artistic director for Chalk Rep. Mm-hmm. They do site-specific pieces in LA. Uh huh. Um, so they do. Let's see. They did. They did a play in a in a show home. Oh. Um, they did a play. Um, in front um, at the uh, La Brea Tar Pits, in front of this oh. amazing mural, you know the one that begins mm-hmm. with, yeah, um, and it's a really lovely piece. And she, when she was in New York, she, I don't remember which train it was. Was it the L? Was it the F? There was a train line where she wrote a ten-minute play for every single stop. No which kidding. Was <laughs> very ambitious, um, wow. but she learned so much oh, about the city in New York. Yeah. You should all out. Yeah. The two of you in okay. Um, that is great. I was, I was thinking as after, after fairy plays, I was thinking about it. I was thinking like to me, an absurd version of this would be, um, like the sort of epic thousand page novel version of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend who does a walk for charity every year mm-hmm. where she and a group of people walk the entire perimeter of Manhattan Wow! and they start at you know, six in the morning and they end at six in the evening, they have a big dinner together. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to, just to imagine, because the, the thing that I was left with after fairy play, and this is something that's said in, in a way, um, in the piece is that the Staten Island Ferry is forever changed for me forever. You right. know, there's this, there's this part of New York city that is, um, an absolute staple, you know, that is, it's as New York as the Empire State Building, yeah. and it now has it's now held in this in this new type of meaning that's really wonderful. And I imagine that I mean, was that something that as you two were working on it, it seems like a kind of responsibility in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, was that something you reflected on at all? Absolutely. I mean, I, again, you know, it's this iconic part of New York, um, and. I also think it's a, again, it's one of these democratic places. It's free. Everyone can go, you know. Um, And visitors go, commuters go, you know, many people ride it for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, and I also, uh, Jesse has this line in the play about we're all here, we're all together, just for these 18 and a half minutes, we're together it's in this community. little we'll community. Come together once, yeah. yeah, and only once, and then it will disperse. Um, but I think that we're asking you to look at the world in a new way, and look at the city in a new way, yeah. and look at that boat ride in a, new, in a new way. And counterintuitively, I also love the idea of a smartphone play because rather than walking down the street texting, 
we're using the smartphone, but asking you to put it away and smell the salt water, you know, feel the breeze, yeah. smell the snack bar if there is one on your ferry, mm -hmm. you know, listen to what's going around on around you, look around and see who's on the ferry with you. So we're asking you to be present on that ferry ride. And to turn on it, put it on airplane mode. Yes, right, so that you don't get interrupted. Which was, yeah. a, which was always a great, a great relief. Right, right, when we right. To do that. That's fantastic. Well, I look forward to Subway Plays. Um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that Pool Play ah, yes. came about because one of our list, uh, on our list of places we wanted to create a pod play was a swimming pool. And of course, then I swim every morning mm -hmm. at the waterside uh, swimming pool over in the gym over there. Okay. And um, as I was swimming, I thought, no, 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 no. We have to actually do a live theater piece in this pool. So I went to the manager of the gym and I said, could we do like a play in the pool? And she thought that was a crazy, wacky idea. And she went with it. And she said, great. So we got some dates, and Jesse and I started talking about um, what would be in it. And I had been reading this book uh, a couple of years before that called Contested Waters about the history of swimming pools in the United States, oh, wow. which is really fascinating. Um, because the history of pools is uh, the history of um, race and gender and class mm. and, you know, all those issues. So uh, pools, many of them were originally built as places where um, people living in tenements could go and bathe and go and exercise and go and frolic and have fun. I mean, people um, in tenements on the Lower East Side used to just swim in the East River. Mm. But then uh, swimming pools were built so that they could go and really exercise and, you know, and then shower and et cetera, et cetera, because many of these tenements didn't have plumbing. Um, but, of course, they were segregated by gender. And so, uh, you know, women would get Tuesday and Thursday, and men would get Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, et cetera, et cetera. When they were desegregated by gender, they became segregated by race. And so then you had a situation where you had all of these public pools that were really for whites only. Mm. And, of course, uh, on paper, there was a notion that, you know, there would be another pool for the African-American population, which was either never built or built in a place that people couldn't get to or et cetera, et cetera. So the history of swimming pools is really fascinating. I mean, it's a kind of a, again, a microcosm of the United States mm -hmm. and all of our issues and all of our preoccupations and fears and fantasies. And, um, and then you get white flight and you get people building their suburban pools. And then you get this phenomenon of, of somebody building a pool that then they never use. They have it to kind of show off, but they never actually swim in it. Mm. So we began to uh, work on all of these scenes dealing with what the swimming pool was. As we were working on it, my daughter began to have to swim. She was in middle school then, and they took the middle school students swimming uh, once a week. And she began to get crazy about, you know, I have to shave my legs and I have to do this and I have mm -hmm. to do that. And I thought, right, at a time in your life where you are the most self-conscious about <laughs> your body, you're yeah. then asked to basically strip naked and walk around in front of your peers. And, of course, the girls were all told 
that if they had their periods, they couldn't swim, they had to sit out. So if you're sitting out on a bench, oh, you're basically wearing a sign saying, you know, I'm menstruating now. I mean, it was wild. Um, so, uh, you know, all of that kind of story ended up in the play. So, and Jesse had actually had a similar experience. This would be the fabled part of the recording that failed. We do apologize, and we'll be picking up again in three, two, one. Oh, a privilege is the... Oh, if, 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 oh, if privilege seems invisible to you, then that's probably because you have it. Um, another another way in which the pl- this play played with that sort of thing and played with our assumptions um, was the dance in the bathroom, mm-hmm. which was set up really wonderfully. Um, one of the things that happened, and I heard it happening to a number of different people in a number of different ways, when we first got to the party, um, were people being very excited about this dance that was going to happen <laughs> in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it sort of, I hadn't really thought of it that, like I hadn't thought of the party as being framed as you're going to go to this party and this unbelievably wonderful Brooklyn artist is going to show you his new avant-garde dance piece <laughs> that's happening in a bathroom. This, again, mm-hmm. site-specific instead of site-specific. Right. Um, and then you see the dance and it's like ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, very entertaining, mm-hmm. but um, but when one imagines like cutting-edge avant-garde dance that actually has all the structures and history behind it, mm-hmm. one doesn't necessarily imagine someone... Um, knocking rubber duckies off of a bathtub with his ass. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it was, Although a lot of his other movements and ideas and themes are, you know, part of the sort of avant-garde of dance. But yes, absolutely. But the rubber ducks, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's sort of what was wonderful about it. It wasn't mm-hmm. just ridiculous, mm-hmm. but it but it also but it also opened itself up for being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. In how is that um, how is that developed? What was that idea about? That was all Jonathan's work. Hmm. Uh, Jonathan Matthews is this wonderful choreographer um, who lives in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. All of that is true. Um, trained at uh, Tisch School of the Arts. Um, he was a student of mine mm-hmm. when he was an undergraduate and um, graduated. And he's very smart and very interesting and a very talented dancer. And he has this really interesting mind and it puts incredible ideas together um and so i invite when we were talking about doing this piece i invited him to choreograph a piece for the bathtub Mm -hmm. and that was all i said to him and uh he came up with everything yeah he chose the music i mean we talked about the themes in the piece and the themes that were going to be in the other scenes and um you know uh, uh, the question, one of the questions in the in the, the other bathroom mm-hmm. scene is, you know, if you have some sort of personal trauma going on, do you get a pass mm-hmm. on your responsibility to think about income inequality or racism in this country or anything like that? Um, one of the questions that we raise in the bedroom scene is... Um, you love your dog, you have a responsibility to take care of a dog, um, and yet the cost of that could save X number of human beings. So what are the sort of moral um, trade-offs in the different choices and decisions that you make in terms of taking care of a dog, sending your money to, you know, uh, 
support Syrian refugees, mm -hmm. et cetera, as they, as they are resettled. Um, so he and I talked about all of those um, themes and issues and et cetera, et cetera. And obviously he read the script. And, mm -hmm. um, but then I, I let him come up with, with his own piece. The, the first piece in the bathroom, because all, all of the pieces in different ways seem to sort of set us up to, as you said before, sort of set us up to, to judge these people. Like these people are not, um, I would be so much more thoughtful. I would be so much more sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, and the first scene that we saw was the scene in the bathroom, mm -hmm. um, which uh, where it's a monologue from a character who, I imagine in, there are points in the beginning and throughout it where one could think, oh, this is just a privileged, um, like maybe ditzy young woman, etc. cetera. Right. Um, and the way that it plays with that and also the fact that we're so close to her, but then there are these moments of real vulnerability. Yeah. They're always sort of immediately turned over into something else. Mm -hmm. um, as you were working with the actors, because mm -hmm. um, imagine not many actors have had an opportunity or the experience of being so close to uh, their performers. I mean, this sort of immersive thing isn't huge and broad. Um, what were the conversations like with the actors about performing in such incredibly tight spaces and with uh, with audience members two, three inches from them? Well, we, we didn't have those conversations until about halfway through the process. And then we actually began to rehearse that. Mm. Um, I found when we did a serious banquet that there was a point at which we needed to rehearse with an audience. Um, and so we split up into different groups and we were each other's audiences for a while. Mm -hmm. And with that piece, I think we had five nights of sort of test audiences coming in, um, where mm -hmm. we worked on interacting and then we, you know, they stayed and we said, what was it about? What was your experience? Da, da, da. And, um, I think it's very hard to maintain a character and have an actual interaction with an audience member who's not a character in the scene that you're playing, right? Mm -hmm. Who's sort of on the other side of a fourth wall that doesn't actually exist, but would exist if it were on a proscenium stage, right? Um, so Caitlin, who plays Judy in the bathroom, was in a serious banquet and has a lot of experience working. She was one of the demoiselles, mm -hmm. um, Demignon. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of experience working in this kind of situation where she's close up to the audience. I mean, their actors were interspersed with audience members at the dinner table mm -hmm. and had to improvise dinner conversation with them in character. Um, and here, it's not, within each scene, it's not interactive. The piece as a whole is interactive in the sense that you come in, it's a cocktail party, you make small talk, right, right, right. but then once you enter each of the scenes, I think you quickly learn yes. that you should listen, yes. right, as, a, as an audience member. Um, but we played around with Caitlin making eye contact with different people through the mirror mm -hmm. and while she was sitting down. There's um, a line that actually has continued to invite comment, you know, audience, which is, can you hand me that eyeliner? Yes. And people have been tempted to respond verbally, um, and so we've actually cut that line. 
interesting. But um, but she she you know we had rehearsals where we brought people in. She interacted with them. We brought them out. We had um, several um, test audiences who came, friends, family members. Um, and that was when we worked out how the transitions would work and what the ad-libs would be and et cetera, et cetera. So we actually make the audience a part of our rehearsal process, which I think you have to do. Um, Ann Hamburger came the other night. Do, do you know Ann Hamburger? She started On Guard Arts. She's one of the first people who did site-specific yes. theater in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said that it was such a relief to have people actually acknowledge that she was there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that you can forget to do in immersive performance and mm-hmm. in interactive performance. Um, well, not in interactive necessarily. You can't, if you're actually interacting with people, forget that they're there. But in immersive performance, I think you actors often sort of try to hang on to their circle of what Stanislavski called the circle of attention, right, which excludes the audience. Mm-hmm. I think that's not very satisfying. I think if you're going to do this, if you're going to have if the sort of guiding principle or the setup is going to be that you're at a party, mm-hmm. then you have to be at a party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you're the person at the party who monologues, but you're still at a party. There's still, there's still like an odd, especially, particularly in Versailles 2015, there's, a, there's an odd relationship between sort of what could really be happening and what is happening. So like, mm-hmm. so like clearly... Um, her monologue is something that she's saying to, it's unclear if she's saying it to herself or there's one other person there, but it's like an inner monologue that's being spoken out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the conversation between the two men in the bedroom, mm-hmm. there were definitely moments when we were acknowledged. It was like as if we were there. Yeah. Um, and yet there were aspects to their relationship and the way they were talking about things that... That seemed were, private. Exactly. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's, it's, it was interesting how it how that transition didn't feel um, jagged. Like, it didn't seem like we were leaping from one relationship to performers to another relationship to the performers. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you talked about on a script level? Talked about, worked on, everything. Um, and it was, one again, the decision that we made for everyone was that you always have to acknowledge the audience except for if and when you get so caught up in a moment that they disappear for you temporarily, Hmm. which could happen to anyone at a party. I mean, I know I've been to parties where I've gotten into a conversation with one person that's been so interesting, I've just ignored the entire rest of the party. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea was that that can happen to any one of the characters at any time. So the idea is you're at a party, you're talking to anybody, everybody, et cetera, et cetera. But if a moment gets so intense that you become fully absorbed in this conversation, relationship with one person, then it's okay to sort of let everybody else go into kind of soft focus was the, you know, decision that we made. Mm -hmm. And that took some rehearsal because it took some figuring out when that happens, how it happens how it can happen in such a way that it feels sort of organic to a scene, that it doesn't feel like you're suddenly putting a fourth wall up and then pulling it down and then putting it up and then mm-hmm, pulling mm-hmm. it down, because that feels very awkward. Yeah. So it definitely took um, conscious time and attention and rehearsal. And, 
And that was, again, why we needed actual audience members to come and rehearse with us, because mm -hmm. to imagine the audience being there is very different from having an actual audience there. I can imagine. So the actors needed time to actually practice with audience members in the room. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, in, in any sort of live performance, there's there's a moment, I mean, for any, for a proscenium piece in a... yeah. In a 50-seat house, in a 2,000-seat house, there's a point when you need those bodies and those reactions happening. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is really, really great. I've really, really enjoyed. I imagine we could talk for hours. I, I really love listening to, to you talk. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> <laughs> but Noah gets mad at me if I go for more than an hour. So mm -hmm. um, we're going to bring it to a close. Um, can you tell us what's next, or is it not quite specific on the horizon yet? What's next for uh, This Is Not a Theater Company? Well, Subway Play. Okay. Um, and I'm thinking about a play that would happen in a cafe mm -hmm. where you would overhear different conversations at different tables. And again, maybe some of the objects would talk. That's, you know, something I'm thinking about. Um, we've been talking for a while about doing a play inspired by Magritte, where you would enter into a Magritte-like surreal world. I love this entering into paintings thing. Mm -hmm. This is lovely. Yeah, it's a kind of, I, I get a lot of inspiration from painters. So ready-made cabaret, which was our daughter cabaret, actually came from being inspired by Duchamp, yeah. being inspired yeah, by yeah. an exhibit that I saw in London um, where I thought, right, you know, we'll just, the audience will roll the dice and depending on, you know, we'll have scenes and musical numbers and uh, paintings and things that they go look at and whatever they roll that's what we'll do in the moment so we had 28 scenes mm -hmm. um, we did 20 of them mm -hmm. on any given night and the the scenes that we did and the order in which we did them were determined by the audience rolling dice so it was very much inspired by Duchamp mm -hmm. and his theories and by Zara yes that sounds fantastic well I'm very excited to see what you all do next. I'm very excited for you to uh, transform the subway for us also. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you Aaron. very much. All right. Once again, thanks to Aaron Mee for being our guest on the show today. Thanks for Zay for doing the duties that we have charged him with. And if memory serves, we are at that point where uh, we're going to go ahead and upgrade the facilities in New York. So thank you to all the Patreon backers. Hey, you want to become a Patreon backer of the show? Why, thank you. You're an awesome person. It really helps out. I mean, no, seriously, it actually helps out. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, if somehow you've magically stumbled here and don't know about the newsletter or about the Twitter feed, uh, here's how to find those. The newsletter can be signed up for at noproscenium.com. You'll also find links to all the other places we are online as part of that, the newly revamped noproscenium.com. Um, there's also the Twitter feed, which is uh, twitter.com slash noproscenium. There's like a theme here, right? Uh, you can... I make that joke every time. It's probably not even funny to me at this point. Uh, you can find us on Facebook by searching for noproscenium. We often put the newsletter archives up on there. Uh, I want to say we always do, but I also don't want to be a liar. Uh, there's uh, the, new, the, the way to reach the newsletter directly in terms of editorial content. If you have a show that you know about or you're making and you want to get the word out there, you email us no underscore proscenium 
at Outlook.com. Why did I choose Outlook.com? Maybe I didn't want to give you know, Google all my business when it came to email. Uh, so no underscore proscenium at Outlook.com. Show announcements, tips, clues, hints about escape rooms, the secret formula for beer. I don't know. Just send us notes. Uh, let us know how much you hate this show. Let us know how much you love this show. Uh, suggest people who could be on the show. There's nothing else to say. Uh, that's it. Uh, Thanksgiving's around the corner. We've got another episode next week. It's going to be fun. We've got the folks from Think Well. So we're going into the themed entertainment universe uh, and talking about people who do this stuff for a living on a giant scale and about how much they're excited about immersive and interactive theater. And it's ilk. I just like saying ilk a lot. That's it. I'm Noah Nelson, at Noah J. Nelson on the Twitters. Uh, And until next time, I'll see you at the show. Um, So there's a story in the play... um, We miss that. Oh, do
two, one. I touched that. That's gonna be no good. Better? Nope. Not better. Now better. Three, two, one. How's that? Seven, eleven. Oh no, that's no good. That's no good. Let's get that open. Okay, there we go. That's the level. Okay, a little bit of interference. Huh. Where's that coming from? Oh, electromagnetic shielding. Hmm. Well, we'll just have to go with it. Three, two, one. Hey, gang, welcome to... Yeah, that's too loud, of course. This was actually doing it. Two, three, one. There we go. All right. Three, two, one. Hey, gang, welcome to episode 28 of the No Persinium podcast. Yeah, swallow that. Three, two, one. Hey, gang, welcome to episode 28 of the No Persinium podcast, your podcast about immersive and interactive theater and its ilk. I'm your host. I just swallowed that as well. Three, two, one. Oh, no. <laughs> good timing. Good timing. Okay. Three, two, one. What's that noise? I'm getting like signal something. How can I defend against that? Can I defend against the dark arts here? I love how microphones pick up electromagnetic signals. It's so useful. It is so incredibly useful. No, no, actually, no, I never, I never have to, I usually just turn like my phone's Wi-Fi off, but like, just to be on the safe side, but like, I've never had it, I've never had the Wi-Fi in the, in general be a problem before. This is interesting. Something, some, some signal somewhere. All right. Three, two, one. I'll just do this really quick. Three, two, one. <laughs> 